John chapter 3, verse 16. Brethren, let us hear God's Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Speaking of Jesus Christ, and He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Now we've been studying the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we refer to as particular redemption, or Definite atonement. We find those uh, more accurate terms than limited atonement. Now, seeking our answer from Scripture, we've been attempting to answer the question, for whom did Christ die? Having carefully considered the alternatives, we concluded that there were only two viable answers according to the Scripture. Either Christ died for all men and all their sins, or Christ died for some men and all their sins. Having considered the uh, numerous passages thus far, but certainly not being exhaustive, the weight of evidence has pointed to the answer that Christ died for some men and all their sins. Now, we weighed this especially in the light last week of his work as a priest. However, there are those who at this particular point might honestly uh, ask how this could be possible in the light of several other passages of Scripture. Someone might say, well, you're stacking the deck. You've been going all to all of these verses that, that seem to make your case, but there are other verses in the Bible. And that's true. <clears throat> and these verses usually contain the words world, all, or every. And... <clears throat> It is fair that the questions that are raised should be answered. We don't think um, that ignoring those verses is either good nor proper. And not only are we not troubled by those verses, but very often they make the very opposite case of those who would object. Now, we're not going to take the time over the next few weeks to go through all the verses that have the words all or world or every. But I trust that with establishing a few principles this week, God willing, next week, and perhaps the week after, we'll see. uh, I think we can see how to understand these words in light of the way Scripture uses them. So... This evening we're going to look at the word world. If there are two verses that are usually raised in objection to the position that we have been uh, setting forth from Scripture the last four weeks, it's usually John 3.16 and 1 John 2.2. And people often, when first uh, encountering this particular position, uh, react with amazement, shock, and say, how could you possibly think such a thing in the light of these two verses? I think if we truly understand the way the Scripture uses the words, we might reverse the question, especially in light of the evidence of the things that we've looked at thus far. But, um, I do not ridicule or mock those 
who hold objections. At least those who in a good conscience are holding on to the Word of God. We're not talking about books outside of Scripture right now. We're talking about verses and how they're understood. We're both looking at the Scriptures. So we are not casting off as reprobates those who disagree with us or hold a differing view from the one I will set before you this evening. But we do think that they're in error. So tonight we want to consider the meaning and use of the word world. We want to look at the context of John 3.16 and 1 John 2.2 and the word world. And lastly, we want to consider some important examples regarding the word world. In times past, I have spent as many as three or four messages just on this single word. And that in itself, again, is not exhaustive. But simply to show over and over and over again that the word of God is to be properly interpreted And to do that, we have to understand how the biblical writers used the word. Now, the first time I heard some of the things that I'm going to say to you tonight, I said, ah, listen to those fellows twist the scriptures. I had been taught with very pious slogans like this. The Bible says what it means, and it means what it says, usually followed by several hearty amens. Well, we can't dispute that. Uh, the, The fact is, though, what does it mean? Because it is quite obvious that we don't all read the same verses and come away with the same conclusions. Some of that may be our sinful flesh, Some of that may simply be the teachings of certain ones that we've respected. Someone that's had a tremendous impact on our lives. Perhaps someone that led us to the Lord. And we are loath to disagree with how they understand the Word of God. But brethren, the thing that utterly changed my mind regarding all of this was not a book on the subject as such, even though I tried to read as many good books Uh, As I could regarding this subject, the thing that changed my mind was sitting down and taking every reference to the word world in Scripture. Looking at it, reading the verses that used it, and how they were being used in those contexts. And I discovered uh, what perhaps some of you have discovered, or maybe some of you will discover, is that I was generally taking one definition from modern English and trying to force it into every time that the word showed up. Or maybe two or three definitions in modern English and trying to squeeze those in when it was obvious that one of the others wouldn't work. But most of the time I didn't get far enough to think past one definition. Fortunately, I'm afraid that many of us do this. The biblical writers use words and all words... uh, or maybe I should say, most words have several meanings. Take the word right, R-I-G-H-T. How many different ways can we use that? Right is the opposite of left, as far as directions go. Right is the opposite of left in a political sense. Right can mean um, correct. You know what I'm saying? Right. Now, if we were to sit down and take one definition and write a sentence using each each way that word can be used, but only apply one definition every time we read it, we would come up with confusion. And that is very often what happens. So it is, I believe, with the word world. The Bible means exactly what it says, but what did the writers mean and what did the Holy Spirit intend? Any of us can be guilty of driving our definitions with our own theology. So it is my hope in just one 
short uh, study this evening to try to set some principles before you to see how this uh, works. So let's consider the meaning and use of the word world. We must begin by defining it and having asked many people over the years how they understand it, I've usually heard the reply, oh, it means everybody in the world. Now, when pressed what they mean by that, after a little careful thought, they'll usually say, well, every man, woman, or child who ever lived. It comes as a surprise to those who think this way when confronted with the fact that the biblical word cosmos, translated in the English world, rarely means this. It does mean it on occasion, but very rarely. <clears throat> there would be some that would contend it's never used this way, but I would just say <clears throat> the vast majority of the weight of evidence is that it is used in a way different than this. They are equally surprised to discover that there are several definitions of the word world. And most of the time it is because they have simply never taken the time to sit down with a concordance, with a good lexicon, and look through the various usages. So let's consider the definition of the word world and its uses by the biblical writers. Now, at first, this may seem just a tad tedious because we're going to look at definitions. And we're going to look at several definitions. But I trust that you will begin to see uh, the purpose and then find the interest in doing something like this. The Greek word, which is translated into our English world, is cosmos. Now, the history of cosmos reveals that it has several senses connected with the idea of arrangement or Order, which means that something that is well arranged from its individual parts. This is the idea. Something that is well ordered. Now this can refer to right order. It can refer to human order. And this is why the very first definition in Thayer's lexicon and in the enhanced Strong's lexicon is an apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution, order, government. And brethren, if you will take the time to read through some of the heavier exegetical lexicons and theological dictionaries, they will be glad to give you paragraphs of the history of this word and how it was used by the philosophers and by the various periods of Greeks. <coughs> But secondly, because this means well-arranged, what was in the Greek world well-arranged was considered to be beautiful. Something that was well-arranged was beautiful. And so, it comes to a specialized meaning of adornment. Adorning. Ladies are often given to Adorning, they order themselves a particular way. And this is exactly the way Peter uses the word in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. He says of women whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of planting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. The word adorning there is the word cosmos. Now, the way Peter is using it is that the, the word cosmos here is in the sense of that a woman whose beauty is, is in superficial external things is not properly ordered. Thirdly, Greek philosophers used cosmos to mean the sum total of everything here and now. All created and transitory things. The universe as an ordered structure. Most commentators and lexicographers understand Paul using cosmos this way in his sermon in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. On Mars Hill, he said, 
God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. What they say is that Greek, as Paul would have been speaking it to those Gentiles, would have been understood when he said, Cosmos is not the earth in and of itself, but the universe, the entire ordered structure of created things. Fourthly, it can mean the planet on which we live, the habitation, the dwelling place of mankind. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil taketh him, that's the Lord Jesus, up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And that's obviously on the planet, the earth in which we live. Fifthly, it can mean the inhabitants of the earth, men, the human race. Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, the Lord Jesus says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. He's not speaking to mountains or trees or rivers or clouds. He's talking to men. It is men who offend. Sixthly, it can mean the whole mass of mankind alienated from God. And therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. Scripture uses this way many times. Especially John and Paul. John in chapter 15 verse 18 says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. This is lost mankind. Seventhly, it can mean world affairs, the scene of earthly joys, the whole circle of earthly possessions, endowments, riches, advantages and pleasures that we find here. Those things which stir desire and seduce us from God. These are things that are obstacles in coming to Christ. The scripture tells us that plainly in Matthew chapter 16 verse 26. What, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world. But what is Christ saying? All of the pleasures, all of the things, all of the riches, all of the wealth, all of the pleasures. What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Eighthly, can mean a great sum of something implying almost incredible totality. I had to write that down. That was a good definition. I had not heard that one before. Uh, Put that way. But one of the lexicons says an almost incredible totality. Meaning a tremendous amount if we just want to put it down into our language. James chapter 3 verse 6 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It's not talking about a planet. It's not talking about hills and valleys. It's not talking about people. It's talking about a great amount. A world of iniquity. Look how big it is. That's the point. That can be broken down into subcategories. This is truly amazing. And those of you that have any questions about this, I urge you with all of my heart. Go sit down and spend a couple of days with the most authoritative lexicons. They will will plainly tell you that when it's speaking of categories, that uh, sometimes it means believers only. And we see that in chapter uh, 6 of John, verse 33. For the bread of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life... Unto the world. Brethren, the Lord Jesus doesn't give life to anybody but believers. So that's believers being spoken of there. He doesn't give life to every man, woman, and child that has ever ever been. But now we come to the most 
important meaning for our study this evening. The word world is often applied to the Gentiles in Scripture. Now I want to quote from four different lexicons. Thayer's lexicon says, The Gentiles as contrasted to the Jews. Romans 11, 12. Arndt and Gingrich, their lexicon, says, In this line of development, cosmos alone serves to designate the pagan world. Romans 11, verse 12, verse 15. Vine's Expository Dictionary. Gentiles as distinguished from Jews. Romans 11, 12. The Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament. With special reference to the Gentiles in contrast with the Jews. Romans 11.12. Isn't that interesting that they keep going back to that passage? And we're going to turn there. But there's a reason for this. And let me tell you why I quoted these four. Now, I looked through just about every lexicon that I have uh, I would have spent a great deal more time, but this is, was just going to be a one evening study, so uh, I wasn't trying to completely overwhelm anyone. But at least enough to make the point is this. One of the reasons I love to use Thayer, even though he is one of the older lexicons, and there has been a great deal of, of a discovery regarding Greek since the time Thayer wrote his lexicon. One of the reasons I love to use Thayer is because he's not a Christian. Thayer was a Unitarian. He denied the deity of Christ. He denied the Trinity. He didn't believe what we believe. That makes his handling of these things valuable because we can look at him as an objective source. His theology would not be driving him to say this. He's telling you what the verses mean and how they're being used. Now, yes... Uh, someone who denies the Trinity can certainly skew uh, Scripture. And there are several places in his lexicon that you must be very careful when you read him. But most of the time, being the scholar that he was, he was fairly, fairly honest in the way that he used the Scriptures. Arndt and Gingrich, not known to hold our position, give this very uh, same contrast. Vine was a, a Plymouth Brethren who believed in a universal atonement, and the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament is basically by moderate conservatives at best and liberals on the other hand, all of them are saying the same thing. Now the reason I say that is because there would be those who would stand up and say, well, you're one of those people that believes in the sovereignty of God. And you're one of those people that believes in predestination and election. And so, of course, you would be looking to, to, to find scriptures and things like that just to back up your case. And this is why I appeal to these who would completely disavow what I believe when it comes to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, turn to Romans 11. Turn to Romans 11. And let's take a look to see how Paul is using this and see why they continue to point to this particular passage. Brethren, what we need to understand very clearly <clears throat> is that because the Jews were the elect of God, because the Jews were the covenant people of God, because the Jews had the glorious covenant promises of God. They believed themselves, of course, and rightly so, God's people. You only have I known among all the nations of the earth. God had told them. Unfortunately, very often, their eyes were not open, as Paul plainly points out in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, even to this day, there's a veil on their hearts. They don't understand the very scriptures that they speak in the synagogues every Sabbath. <clears throat> the Jews had been told by God to be separate from the Gentiles and they began to view the Gentiles, of course, as spiritual inferiors. They were the dogs 
It was an us and them way of thinking. It's all through the Scriptures. Brethren, it's shown by Paul's very life and ministry in Acts. When you look at the book of Acts, who were his greatest enemies? The Jews. Because they hated what he was teaching. The Jews called Peter on the carpet and said, What were you doing in that Gentile's house? Acts chapter 10. Alright? Is everybody clear? Us, them. In other words, the way the Jews thought was we, the Jews, we, the covenant people of God, we, the circumcision, and everybody else, the world, the Gentiles, us, them, we, God's people, the world was everybody else. That's exactly the way Paul uses the language in Romans 11. Verse 12, he says, Now, if the fall of them, the Jews, be the riches of the world, everyone else, the Gentiles, and the diminishing of them, the Jews, the riches of the Gentiles, the world, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them, the Jews, which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them, the Jews, and he began chapter 9 by saying they had all the blessings, they had the covenants of God, they had the oracles of God, all of these things. He says, if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. Now, brethren, you can't make the world there be every man, woman, and child that's ever been. Because there's a division here. And that's the point. This is Jewish thought because Paul was a Jew and he was speaking the way the Jews understood their world. (laughs) They were God's people. The world was the Gentiles. Us and the world. Now that's the Jewish way of thinking. And that is the way the Jewish writers often use it. Now let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. By the way, let me say, just for sake of interest, Thayer's lexicon has eight definitions of the word world with subdivisions under many of them. Uh, The Theological Dictionary of uh, the New Testament, Kittle's Dictionary, has four major categories with numerous subdivisions under that. Uh, Vine has eight definitions. Uh, The exegetical uh, dictionary of the New Testament just simply breaks it up by the writers and shows under each writer how many different ways each of the writers uses it. Uh, The Enhanced Strongs has eight definitions. William Hendrickson's commentary, the New Testament commentary on the, the Gospel of John. He gives six uses of the word world simply within John's Gospel. And we could go on, brethren. I could bore you to tears with Loanida's uh, uh, dictionary, which has uh, six definitions, and 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 just keep stacking them up. No, as a matter of fact, they had seven, and the analytical had six. Now, all of that and many others simply point to the fact that when we come to that word, we must try to understand how it's being used. What definition would most likely fit? And we must, of course, caution ourselves and pray because any of us would certainly want to choose that which would most serve our particular theology. Here we go. John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of whom? The Jews. How did the Jews think? Us, the Jews, and them, the world, the Gentiles. The same, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a, an absolutely wonderful passage, and I wish we had time to do a, a, uh, an exposition all the way through it. We don't have that time this evening, but we're going to come back to this passage in the next uh, unit of our study when we're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit and salvation. But what we want to notice at this point is that Nicodemus comes at night there are many different reasons that uh, various have offered over the years as to why he came at night, but what's obvious is that he did. He came at night. John often contrasts night with darkness and sin and light with salvation. Nicodemus comes at night. It's an overwhelming picture when you sit and think about it. Here is an astute religious man, a great theologian, a ruler of the Jews, a man who believes he's a child of Abraham and one ready to go into the kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells him, uh, after, after he says, well, we know you're a great teacher, the Lord Jesus just immediately begins to teach him. He doesn't say, thank you, glad to have you here, I appreciate your kind remarks. He just says, well, unless a man's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Now, the Jews and the rabbis, the Pharisees, were trained in questions. And they would spend hours and hours and hours and hours memorizing Scripture. And then like lawyers, they had their huge volumes of commentaries and would sit amongst one another and ask Pointed questions, trying to divide theological issues down to the very smallest uh, hair. And so they would very often come back with challenging questions when someone made a particular theological statement. That's exactly what Nicodemus does. And Nicodemus is not a dummy. So when he says, how can a man be born when he's old? He's not sitting there trying to figure out the physiology of that. He's challenging what Jesus is saying. How can such a thing happen? He goes on and he says, Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We know that's not possible. What are you talking about? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He goes on to explain these things and he talks about being born of God's spirit, that being like the blowing of the wind. Nicodemus answers, he's befuddled. How can these things be? He doesn't understand. He's come saying, you're a great teacher. So Jesus begins to teach him. And Jesus is teaching him from the Old Testament. He's taking images directly out of the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. The great teacher is teaching, and the student doesn't understand. Now, he says, now look, I say unto thee, verse 11, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. In other words, Nicodemus, you and the ones like you are unbelievers. You don't believe us. Now, if I told you earthly things, and ye believe not... How shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If I open this wide open, if you don't get these things that I'm pointing to, talking about the wind and water, which all comes out of images, out of the scripture you've memorized, when I open it up, how are you going to understand? When I speak of heavenly things, then he goes back to a passage that historically was one of those that the commentators of the Jews really wrestled with, out of numbers. And he says, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He makes a connection between the Son of Man and the serpent. He's teaching. And then he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Brethren, this was an absolutely astonishing statement. We take it as just standard uh, fundamental religious talk. But this was a dialogue between two people, an unbeliever and the very God of heaven in the flesh. And 
the God of heaven, the incarnate Son, begins to teach this one who comes in with his uh, language of, well, you're a great teacher. Well, the great teacher teaches greatly. He teaches about salvation. And he speaks about only those who will be saved. And as he does in many of his discourses, while the Jews stand before them, he ratchets up the intensity of what he's saying. With each level, he brings it higher. And Nicodemus is in the, 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 the deep end of the pool. He can't touch bottom. How can this be? And Jesus just goes higher. Let me tell you something else. The love of God goes beyond the borders of Israel. The Jewish mind says, we're the people. Jesus says, God's love goes beyond you and goes into the world, to the Gentiles, to the other nations. Why would he be doing that? Why would he say that? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies of salvation. Remember, Nicodemus has come for a theological discussion. He's told the Lord that he's a great teacher and the Lord just begins to unfold as he does in other places in the scriptures. He unfolds how he is salvation. Remember that in Genesis chapter 2, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, the great Abrahamic covenant. What does it say? I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and I will make thy name great as God speaks to Abraham and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All the families, not just the Jews. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, the Lord Jesus, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek the world. And his rest shall be glorious. Let me just stop and put a footnote, brethren. That's us. We have found his rest glorious. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, that's the Lord Jesus, God the Father speaking, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to Israel, to the Gentiles. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, 6, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. What are we hearing? A universal scope of salvation. A salvation coming from Abraham's seed that will go to all families, that will go to the farthest ends of the earth. And it's all based in that Holy One that God will raise up. That root of Jesse, that blessed servant, God the Father's elect. Malachi 1.11 says, From the rising of the sun, even into the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. John chapter 4, verse 42. Is this something that, that people understood? Well, some of them did. A woman who was living in filthy immorality, coming out to get a drink of water, in God's sovereign providence, ran her path right across the Lord Jesus. While his disciples went in to get some food, he was about to give someone living water. After he exposes her sins and reveals himself as Messiah, she runs into town. And she tells everyone what is going on. They come out and hear him. And after they hear him, they say, Now we believe, not because of thy saying. For we have heard him ourselves and know that this indeed, this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Every kind of man, all kinds of families, every kind of sinner, not just Jews 
the Old Covenant Scriptures were filled with promises of light and salvation for the Gentiles. But very often, the Jews did not clearly see it. And that is, if you just want proof of that, read the book of Acts all the way through. Even the, even the first Jewish Christians were stunned that Peter went to Cornelius' house. How could you go to that Gentile? He could have very easily have sat back and said, Well, have you never read Isaiah 11.10? Have you never read Isaiah 42.1? Light to the Gentiles! This is what it's about. It's in Christ. It's burst through the borders of our nation. And God is grafting in the wild olive branches. In other words, the word world is speaking of God's universal love and work in Christ. Universal in the sense that it encompasses the ends of the earth. Now I have to take an exception to my beloved friend Arthur Pink. I love Arthur Pink. And some of you no doubt are familiar with his wonderful book, The Sovereignty of God. And in the back he has an excellent chapter on John 3.16. Theologically, what Pink says is world here in John 3.16 equals elect. Now theologically, we take this down to the most technical sense. I don't disagree with him. Where I think he errs is the emphasis. He is limiting it in the face of theological argument. In the context, Jesus is expanding it. Jesus is saying, not just to you, Nicodemus, and those who will believe in Israel but to the world God's love in Christ goes into every nation. It doesn't mean every man, woman, and child that ever has been or that ever will be. Jesus is speaking in Jewish terms. He is speaking of fulfilled prophecy and He's pointing to the expansiveness, the bigness of the love of God. In other words, Christ is saying, Nicodemus, even the Gentiles, those that are born of my spirit, will be in that kingdom. Now, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 reads, of Christ, and He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Brethren, it's exactly the same principle is exactly the same principle. Galatians chapter 2 verse 9 tells us plainly, When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, the world, the Gentiles, and they unto the circumcision. Now, Paul spoke to Jews as well as to Gentiles, but his primary mission was the Gentiles. And the same thing can be said for John. John, of course, spoke to, to Gentiles, but he was primarily an apostle to the circumcision. That's the declaration of Scripture. He's speaking to those in his realm of things. And he's saying, as Christ said in John 3, the love of God, the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ, goes beyond the borders of Israel. And into the whole world. It doesn't mean that Jesus died for every single human being. It means the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the ends of the earth. His love is so big that it goes to every kind of sinner in every nation. Now does the Bible say something like that? Yes it does. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. 
Verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That's the world. I think he's right that ultimately it means God's people. But that's not the emphasis of John 3, uh, 16. The emphasis is the, the universality, the going to the ends of the earth of God's love out of the nation of Israel. But it doesn't mean every single human being past and present and future. Well, let me close this quickly. We've hit our time limit for this evening. I have another point to go here. Uh, but let me, uh, <clears throat> let me simply say it this way. If you'll give me about three or four extra minutes, we'll just do an overview. And if I think we need to come back and hit this, we will again next week. But I think enough has been said to set the principle down. We must be able to look into the Scriptures and see how it's being used. You see, very often the biblical writers will use the word world even in the same verse in a different way. John chapter 1 verse 10 says that Christ, He was in the world, geographical location, and the world was made by Him, creation, and the world knew Him not, the people to whom He came. Two, arguably, three uses of the exact word. John 3.17 For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send Him into this world. And when it speaks of God sending the Son into the world, it means coming into this sphere. He didn't send Him into this sphere to condemn all of the people in it, the world, but that the world through Him might be saved, His people, in every nation. And we won't go through the particular verses tonight. I had about a half dozen verses where it could not possibly mean each and every person that ever lived. But brethren, our whole point then is to see the the bigness and the glory and the scope of God's wonderful love in Christ. That we can go to the ends of the earth and proclaim that there is a Savior and that whosoever will may come. Because He's going to call them out of every tribe and every tongue and every kindred and every nation. Well, brethren, if you do not know this Christ, oh, I would call, I would call you to Him. He saves. He is a willing Savior. Come unto me, all ye that are labor, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call of Christ is precious, and I trust you hear it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercies and grace. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you and pray that you would help us to understand these sometimes difficult passages. And very often they're difficult because we've been taught different things regarding them. But I pray that you would challenge the hearts of those who hear this message to study the Word of God until they're certain how the writers are using these terms. And, O Father, may our consciences be bound to Thee and to Thy Word alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.